thread. A singular thought expanded upon. Thread is the podcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. For more information, log on to Quinley.com. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to Thread, episode 51. And while those of you in the Northern Hemisphere are struggling with the deep snows of winter, I and my family are down here in Australia, where February means hot summertime. So down here uh, in preparation for the United Christian Broadcasters board meeting, which is coming up in just a few days, and taking the opportunity to visit our dear friends, the Lehmans. We've got so much history with this family, and we're here with Christine and the girls in uh, Brisbane, or actually a suburb. Uh, Yesterday was a big day for us because Julia got baptized. We had a baptism last night in the ocean, and Julia and Drew have decided with all their heart to publicly confess Jesus as Lord and enter into discipleship. So we were excited about that, and I was really happy that I got to be the one who brought baptism to them. You know, I think Julie's baptism was more meaningful to us, although we didn't do it in a church and there weren't hundreds of people watching. But everybody that was there and all who heard her explain her own faith and her decision to follow Christ were true friends. And she was baptized with her best friend. And so, uh, you know, it's about relationships. It made it even more meaningful to us that everybody in that circle was really in the center of her life, that we're, we're true witnesses for her about uh, how she's going to live and the choices she is going to make. I think relationships are really, you know, it's the stuff of life. It's what, it's, it's what gives us the depth and the meaning in our life. And I, I just feel so sorry for people who don't have many relationships all of our life. Sherry and I have really been on the lookout for quality friends, and we've worked very diligently to uh, connect ourselves to people that we felt like you know God was going to use in our life and people that we could be useful uh, to help shape them as well. And uh, I'm richer because of those people. I'm rich in friends. I've got great friends, and they, they, they help me get through life, and, and they make life meaningful. And I, I think that's the message of this thread, because we're going to pick up a scene where Jesus is facing the cross. He's facing the biggest challenge of his life. He's going to have to endure a horrible physical pain. He's going to be rejected. Mobs of people are just going to be gnawing at him. And he knows that it's coming, and he knows that he has to prepare himself to deal with it, and he, and he knows that that preparation takes two parts. One is he's going to need to spend time alone with God. He's got to get with the Father and get himself full, full spiritually and totally connected to the Father. But he also knows that he needs, he needs his spiritual friends, those people that he loves and those people that love him, He needs that friendship circle to help him deal with his ordeal. And um, I just think this is so important, and we need to get this. Uh, We're going to talk today about the, um, the relational nature of being a disciple of Jesus. 
So if you don't have your Bible, go and get it so you can join us as we do a verse-by-verse Bible study starting in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Okay, let's jump into the text. We open with the Last Supper. And it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus is our Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go enter the city. A man will be carrying a jar of water, and he'll meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And so verse 16 says, The disciples went out and found it just like he said it would be. Uh, We've already said that Christ is preparing to move straight from this meal. I mean, as soon as he's finished eating, he's going to move to the garden. And from the garden, he's going to be arrested, go through the abuse all night long and be dead the next afternoon and he sees it coming he's prepared himself he's tried to prepare them by saying this to them over and over again but you know they just don't want to hear it Uh, one of the lessons that i get from what we're about to see is that before you have a great undertaking you need to pause and collect yourself Uh, one of my favorite seasons of life Life was a time when I got to ride horses. Uh, I was in a really stress-filled period in uh, pastoral ministry. Our church was growing huge, and I was full-time at the seminary in Manila, and traffic was awful, and my time was short. But at about 6.30, a couple mornings a week, I would go down to a stables, and I would jump on a horse, and I would take English riding lessons. And one of the things that they taught me was that just before you intend to to run a horse is you actually tighten up on the reins and you tighten up on your legs. And you think, well, this will stop him. It, it doesn't. It gathers him together because he's moving and he needs to tighten up his movement because you're about to let him go. And uh, something like this is happening. Jesus is pausing. He's collecting himself because he doesn't want to just get in the flesh He's going to be baited, he's going to be uh, insulted, and he wants to be very, very careful that he doesn't do anything from himself that could mess up what God is doing through him. And, you know, this is spiritual life, and this is a spiritual ministry, and we have to be really careful that we don't do our parenting, our marriage, even if you're a boss at work. Uh, that we don't do any of that as though it's about us, but that we realize we're the servants of the Lord and he has placed us in these positions so that we can do his will. So we need to collect ourselves before our big challenges and not just go blundering into them. A uh, second lesson I get from what we're about to see is that fellowship is vital to spiritual strength. Christ found energy through the love he had for these 12 men and the love he received from them. Um, I need that. You know, we've moved to Thailand and that has pretty much cut us off from most of our relationships physically. 
and we're having to establish new relationships. But when we lived in Manila, we had been there for 18 years. We had such close covenant-level relationships, and that was the richest part of, of pastoring for me in that city. And I really have grieved over what I lost when we left the Philippines, and we needed to leave. We knew we were called to leave. And it's not that I lost those friends, but I lost my connection physically with those friends. I don't see them. And there is something very, very sacred about uh, just sitting together and celebrating, eating meals together, singing, praying as a group, uh, discussing what's going on in our life, telling the truth about our lives. You know, having someone that you can tell the absolute humiliating truth about yourself to and know that that person would never breathe a word of it, that they'll bear your burden with you. And that's just a gift in life. God has people like that out there for you. And if you don't, you know, if you don't have them already, just know that they're there. And the Lord wants you to make preparation for them. You know, this Passover meal and this time of fellowship didn't just happen. Jesus wanted it to happen. He made it happen. And the disciples knew that it was a priority and they wanted it to happen also. And so they, you know, they made the situation come together. And I think it's really cool that, you know, God has been speaking to a man in this passage who has an extra room in his house, a big room upstairs. And he has put it in the mind of this man to haul some rugs into that room and some furniture and to organize the room for a meal. You know, it's a spiritual thing to have people in your home to eat food. If you have intention to have godly conversation and spiritual fellowship, like Malachi says, those who uh, feared the Lord, those who love God, met often together and spoke about the Lord to each other. And the Lord listened to their conversation. And I don't know how many times that has happened in my life. We've had these amazing conversations. And I knew that God was in that conversation and he was present at that dinner table just as powerfully as any you know institutional form of religion, any church service or uh, evangelistic event. There was nothing professional about our faith. It was our, you know, the intimacy of sharing a meal and loving one another. And God has used a man whose name we don't know. And uh, some say that the man who was carrying the water was Mark. There's some church tradition for that because it's not a typical male job. And it was kind of like something... It needed to be done, and so Mark just went out and did it instead of waiting around for you know a lady to come by in the household that he could ask to do it. He did it himself, and I guess that says something about his character. But um, you know that God blesses the Marthas of the world, and God blesses those who love hospitality and who don't treat their house like a fortress but who open the doors of their house and invite people into it, understanding that your home is the center of your ministry. It is not where you run away from ministry, as though the church building and the Sunday service, which is the fakest thing we do in Christianity, you know, thank God for Sundays and praise God for worship, but that's the least real that we will ever be with each other. And to think 
that that's where God wants all the emphasis. I was told this in seminary, by the way, that my home is a fortress. I have to keep the people out of it. I can't let the church people invade our home because I have to, quote, protect my family. And we, uh, you know, we listened and we thought, okay, my home's a sanctuary. And then the Lord sent a girl that we didn't invite, a pastor, just she was new to our town. She was single. He sent a letter with her to church the first Sunday and said, this is someone from my congregation. She doesn't have uh, anything in this city. She doesn't know anybody, doesn't have a job. I'm telling her to come and stay with you because I can trust that you would take care of her as a pastor until she can get on her feet. And, you know, we we were forced into a situation of hospitality that challenged everything we had been taught about our home. And uh, we were a little bit embarrassed at ourselves for the secret feelings that we had of, you know, wishing, I don't even know this pastor, you know, of wishing somebody had called us first before they did this. And, you know, we we're trying to be nice to her, but in our heart we weren't right. And she, you know, she didn't stay forever. She stayed until she needed uh, she needed a place to stay and she stayed till she had her own place and she moved on and we've been we've been friends ever since but she was the one that God used to challenge that and from that day on we said this wasn't right we didn't handle this properly let's reverse it and we just made our home an open home and you know that's meant serving a whole lot of people food and it's been expensive to have people live with us for six months at a time but the fathers provided all that, you know. He gave us that extra sofa or bed or he gave us that food and, you know, that's what it's about. And so anyway, you know, that's how we became ministers, really ministers, was learning that our home is a, a place of ministry. So here are men and they're gathered around a table and someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has coordinated the practical matters and God will, you know, God will do that for you. And the circumstances have been arranged so that we can do the Lord's work and we can have Christian fellowship and have the power of the Holy Spirit at work around a dinner table. Uh, and they just have this beautiful meal together and they're, they're hanging out, they're sharing good food. Uh, the Passover meal has such special you know, theological significance that it's about someone else bearing the burden for your sinfulness. And uh, they've enjoyed their evening together. And then Jesus interrupts a very wonderful, warm time with these words. Truly, I say to you, verse 18, one of you will betray me, one who is right here eating with me. Um. And to betray someone you've eaten food with in the Middle East is just a real dastardly, low-down thing because you're not supposed to eat food with people that you aren't in fellowship with. Um, and they began to be sorrowful, verse 19. And I love this because it shows how well-trained they are spiritually. They begin to ask, Lord, is it I? You know, they don't say, you know, I think it might be. Peter, I think it might be James the Less, or going in their mind judging each other. They immediately look to themselves and they recognize that they really hope it's not them. But Jesus is always right. And then Jesus said, it is one of the twelve who is dipping 
bread into the dish with me. So it's either just a general statement about, you know, it's definitely one of you that you would never guess, or it's as uh, John's account tells it, Jesus passes the bread and quietly says that to the ones in his inner circle around him, and they all know that it's Judas, and then Judas leaves the meal at that point. Um, Verse 21, The Son of Man is going as it is written, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so now he enters into uh, the institution of what we call today the Lord's Supper. It's connected to Passover. Jesus is the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the earth. Our sins are placed on the head of the Passover, and because the Passover is killed, we can go free. Uh, In the original Jewish telling of Passover, The angel of death was coming to bring a curse and destruction on Egypt. Families who killed the Passover lamb and applied the blood of that lamb to the door of their house and stayed inside the house. When the angel came by, he saw the blood and he would pass over that house. And that's the only reason we're saved is the blood of Jesus. I'm doing my very best to serve the Lord and to serve God with my conscience, with all my energy. I'm trying you know, to do my best as a flawed human to live for Christ. But I understand that everything I will ever attempt to do in my lifetime has no weight in bringing me salvation. I am only saved. I am guilty. I'm totally guilty. I'm not only unworthy, I am guilty of sin. I have been a rebel against God, and I am in that group. And the only reason that I am saved is the blood of Jesus applied to my life. And that's all I need to be saved. Everything else that I do, I do out of love for the Lord. I want him to understand that I appreciate what he went through and that I don't take the blood of Jesus as a light thing. And I don't think I can just live any way I want after his blood has been shed for me. He is our lamb and praise God for that lamb. And so he passes this meal, he institutes it, he takes the uh, bread and he passes the bread, he breaks it, says, take this, it's my body broken for you. Verse 23, he takes a cup uh, and they drank from a common cup. You know, we get kind of creeped out by that. We want our little sterilized plastic covered cups, but I've been in a lot of countries and it, you know, it means more when you drink from the same cup. Um, It's communion. I've had... I've had people, and it's funny, the immediate bond that it, that it, I don't know where you're at with sharing your drinks, okay? Um, but there's an immediate bond. I remember I was playing soccer, and I was sweaty, and I had a drink with me, and I took a big drink. When I finished, this guy that I hardly knew beside me said, hey, can I have some of that? And I shared it with him, and I thought, wow, that he would drink after me. That That already made me feel that he accepted me. And that we were close. You know, the test was when he handed it back to me. (laughs) And then I had to decide if I felt the same closeness toward him. Um, But that's how they drank. They were brothers. They took their bread. They dipped it in the same, um, you know, sauce dish. And no one growled each other about double dipping. They ate together. They shared their food. 
They drank from the same cup, and uh, that's what communion was. It's not individuality. It's community. And so he, he takes this cup and he passes it after he drinks first. Then he passes and he says, This is my blood, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, that's a huge concept because uh, everything in, in the Jewish faith is built around the concept of the covenant God made with Abraham. It is the core of Judaism. And now Jesus, as he establishes the new way, establishes a new covenant. Abraham had a covenant, and God will keep his covenant demands with Abraham and all of Abraham's children. Jesus is making a covenant not just for Abraham's children, but for all the people of the world. It is a new covenant. It is not, as Abraham's covenant, uh, the blood of a sacrificed animal. That's not it. Jesus is going to pour his own blood out, and this is a covenant cut with his own blood. Uh, That's the core Christian doctrine. It's the covenant that Jesus has established with us as his people. He drinks wine with them, and he says to them, this kind of puts it to, I mean, Jesus drank wine, so we need to get past that. He didn't drink some special kind of grape juice. He drank wine. Everybody drank wine. Jesus drank wine. Not only did he drink it, he made it. But when he comes to this point, he says, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until the day that I can drink it new in the kingdom of God. And some of the other uh, tellings of this, it says, until I can drink it with you in the kingdom of God. So uh, the covenant nature uh, of the bread and of the wine. Um, this is where they go out to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is not a huge mountain. Uh, the temple is really on a pretty high hill. Right after that, there's a, a ravine, and then it goes back up again into another hill, not quite as high, and that's the Mount of Olives. You can sit on that hill and look uh, over on the Temple Mount, and uh, it's just a beautiful place to sit and talk and, and look at the grandeur and the, the scope of the temple. and But before they go out to that place, because that, Jesus liked to pray on that, on that hill. It had a lot of olive groves. But before they prayed, they, they sang a hymn. The, the Greek says they hymned. You know, hymning was a thing that they did. Singing worship. Singing worship is... A key to spiritual vitality in every small group. Sing with your family to the Lord. Sing with your staff. Uh, if you've got a ministry circle or even a, a work staff that's that are believers, sing in your cell groups. Sing at church. Sing at your Christian business. Sing. And you know, there's just a power in those songs. And you know what's cool too is the re, the you know hymns are coming back. My kids are they're oh so cool and they're media savvy. And they, they're telling me, we love hymns. You know, have you ever heard this hymn? And they're just old, 200-year-old songs. They're beautiful. And it, it's a different kind of song. You know, it's got doctrinal content and uh, it sticks with you. We need to worship. And I know in the hardest seasons of my life, I've needed songs more than sermons. And, you know, there were times that I've gone through, oh, I've got my own stories. 
uh, of upheavals that I've had to face. And the, the worse they were, the more I needed music. And if I could find me a CD that I hadn't heard before, worship CD, I would play that thing to death. And it marks that season in my life because all those songs are burned into my heart. And you just sing them and sing them and sing them. But, you know, you need and I need a trusted small group, a group that rolls through life together, a group group that has a, a faith-filled perspective on uh, our life here. And, you know, the pain in your life and my life is best handled by sharing it with your close circle of spiritual friends. And God wants you to have that. If you don't have that, you know, start one. It doesn't have to be a large thing and don't make it so unnatural. Just find a spiritual friend, even one, find two, find three, and just see if you can start having some kind of regularity in your meeting. And and you're not meeting to do anything except be Christians in fellowship with each other. And if I could just start you with one piece of advice Take the TV, either take it out of your living room altogether and have a TV room, but at least turn the thing off. You know, if another human being comes into your house and you have the treasure of time spent with that person, don't let the TV be going on in the corner of the room. Turn that thing off and focus on each other. Go for deeper conversations. Uh, Build covenant friendships. But, you know, uh, God helped me to start this when I was in college. I just started a small group, and all through my life, we've had some kind of home fellowship circle. It's the original form of Christianity. If you had to say, you know, what is the shape of Christianity? Well, I'm certain it's not a rectangle, and that's what we've had for 2,000 years. Churches built in the shape of a rectangle, but the shape of original Christianity is a circle, it's a, it's a small circle. There's probably 10 people at the most in it, 10, 15. There's small house groups, and Christianity is, is alive. It's energized. It's real in places where that is the primary form of church. Now, let all those cells gather together, and you can have an awesome worship. But just to try to do big church and have no body life at all, I think it's the it's probably the number one factor behind the hollow void in institutional Christianity in the West. Uh, they've tried to replace the community of God's people and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with an exciting event put on every week by the church staff. And there's just, that's not where your life comes from. That's not where vitality is going to come from. So if you don't have a group, go find one. If you can't find one, make one. It's not beyond you to do that. You can do it. They do it in China with almost no food and a little bit of money and tiny houses. You can definitely make a cell group and God will meet with you and with your friends as you break bread together and have fellowship. Well, that's all for this time. If you want to talk to me, Chuck at Quinley.com. I would love to interact with you. You can also leave a comment on the Quinley Don, Quinley Don. I've been watching the Godfather all week, Quinley.com website and leave a comment there and I'll post my reply. See you next time on thread. 